Let me invite you to turn to Matthew chapter 21. If you have a Bible, we're going to look at Matthew chapter 21 this morning. Matthew 21 starts the last week of Jesus' life. The finish line is in sight. The cross, the resurrection, all of that is within view. I'll never forget in my mid-20s when my metabolism just checked out, said I'm done. Uh, You can no longer eat whatever you want, and I just ballooned up. I mean, I just got real big. And for a couple years, uh, this um, one man finally one day came to me, Herman Reese, and he said, uh, in love, he said, hey fella, you're fat. (laughs) And, And he said, you know, you... This demonstrates, you're you know, a pastor at the church and this demonstrates a lack of self-control and, uh, and, and a, a growing appetite. And I said, yeah, you're right. You know, he's just an 80-year-old guy. He can say whatever he wants and, and I got to receive it. So I did. And I started running and I started jogging. I did this program where for uh, 30 days, 30 minutes, I jogged until I got tired and then I walked until I recovered. And by the end of it, I was like, if I had a race in mind, I could do this race and that would motivate me. Have you ever done that? Like pick a race that you know you can't do and then it's way out there and you think, I'll train for it. And then once I get there, I'll do the race. And so I picked this race in my hometown of Norman and, um, and I went and I, I, it was the ugliest thing ever. I ran you know, all, with all I got and, um, for four kilometers, entering into the fifth kilometer, the last half, the last two or 300 yards, I can see the finish line and I'm tempted to quit when I see um, an 85-year-old woman in front of me who's beat me this entire time, in front of her I see a man with two prosthetic limbs, right? In front of them I see um, an, an older person wheeling a wheelchair, and here I am, 25, 26 years old, and all three of these people have whooped me the entire race. And so when I was tempted to quit, I saw the finish line, I thought... I've got to get. I've got to. I've got to at least finish strong with them, uh, and so I did. I did my best. I did not beat all of them, uh, and it was a uh, a day when I finished well, uh, barely. Jesus saw the finish line ahead of him. Here, uh, he's entering into Jerusalem uh, for the last week of his earthly life, um, and and this is it. This is his last week where. Uh, on Friday, he will be crucified. Um, the, a week from today for Jesus would have been Resurrection Sunday. And so today, Matthew 21 starts uh, this last week. We call this Passion Week. You've probably heard that before. Um, we, we call today, uh, what do we call today? Yeah, Palm Sunday. Palm Sunday. And, and Palm Sunday kicks off with what event? Yeah, the triumphal entry. The triumphal entry. The, the triumphal entry was, uh, it was like a victory parade. Um, it resembled a victory par- parade in the sense that in those times, a general would enter a city that he had captured or besieged, and he would come riding through with his army on a war horse, parading his victory to a cheering crowd. Jesus' entry resembles this paradigm as a king entering into Jerusalem. I tried to come up with an image for it, and uh, and maybe the best I could do was, um, we had just moved here, our family, in uh, 2007, and um, as per usual, um, the city I moved to, the 
team won a championship. The Phillies won their, um, you know, the World Series. And so on October 31st, 2008, we don't even, never been to a Phillies game. We're not even really Phillies fans uh, at the time. And, um, and so I told my girls and Julie, hey, we're going to skip school today and we're going to go down for this parade. Did anybody else go to that parade, the Phillies parade in 2008? We got on a, 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 a train there in Hatboro and, uh, and we, we made it. It was packed. Uh, we got there. We found our way down to City uh, Civic Hall. Uh, City Hall right there, and on the south side of City Hall, right where Broad Street kind of bends and then turns to the left, you know where I'm talking about? Um, Right there, we positioned ourselves right by the Wanamaker building. Uh, Kennedy and Ellie and I stood up on these uh, little planters where we had a whole view of the buses with all the players on top, and it was just an electric crowd moment. I'll never forget the scene of when those players came down and that uh, roars echoed off the buildings and the streamers were coming down off these high-rise buildings and everybody cheering and everybody shouting and everybody uh, clapping and and the players waving. This is the image that I have uh, of the triumphal entry. It's Jesus riding into town surrounded by crowds. And we know that crowds follow Jesus, as many as 15,000 in some cases. Have you ever been in a crowd like that, where you're surrounded by thousands and thousands of people? There's a, an electricity in the air. Jesus's triumphal entry might have looked something like that. Let's read together the text. Matthew 21, verses 1 through 11. And we'll try to get a sense of what's happening here before we get to the main point of the text, which is Jesus revealing His true identity as the King. Let's let's get a sense of the text. Starting in Matthew 21, verse 1. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethpage to the Mount of Olives... Then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and He will send them at once. Now let's just pause and get some orientation about these two or three verses here. The day before, Jesus had been in Bethany. Bethany was the home of uh, Mary and Martha and Lazarus. You remember that trio, the siblings, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus? Just a few weeks before, uh, Lazarus had um, died. And Jesus delayed right for four days before He went to, um, to visit Lazarus. And um, when he came, Mary and Martha were incredibly sad. And they said, Lord, if you'd only been here, our brother would not have died. And, uh, and Jesus said, do you believe? And they said, um, we believe in th- that one day he will raise again. And Jesus said, well, I, I am the resurrection and the life. And so uh, Jesus goes over to the tomb and, uh, uh, and he begins to weep over Lazarus when he sees everybody else weeping. And they said, see how much he loved him? Couldn't this man who have um, opened the eyes of the blind, couldn't he have healed Lazarus? And, um, and Jesus prays this prayer and then he cries out, Lazarus, come out. And Lazarus is raised from the dead. Four days dead in the tomb. Uh, they said, don't roll away the stone. There's a smell already. So Lazarus is dead, dead. And Jesus cries out, Lazarus, come out. And uh, Lazarus comes out. 
He's been alive for a few weeks now, okay? Um, been alive for a few weeks, and Jesus um, is coming back into, from Jericho, coming back into the Jerusalem area, and this would have been yesterday, you know, a couple thousand years ago, but it would have been Saturday, and he goes to this feast in honor of Lazarus being raised to life. What a party, right? Would you like to go to a party of the guy who was dead and, and now they're throwing a feast honoring Jesus and thanking Him? And because the word had spread, all these crowds went out to Bethany because they heard about Lazarus. Now, Jerusalem is swelling. It's Passover week. Jews from all over the Roman Empire, all over the world, from the diaspora, the, the dispersion of Jews all over the world, they are all coming back into Jerusalem for one of the three feasts that they're required to come back for. So Jerusalem is packed. Uh, statistics say that Jerusalem was a city of about 250,000, but during Passover, it would swell to over a million people. Now, that doesn't mean much to us because we live in a city, near a city of 6 million people, and New York City, 11 million people, and those kind of things. So millions don't mean much to us, but little Jerusalem, uh, 2,000 years ago, a, a city swelling to over a million people would have been a big deal. So Jesus is uh, in this place. He knows this crowd is here. And, and so now he's going um, into Bethpage, which is like a bedroom village community um, near Jerusalem. It's, it's as Telford is to Souderton, right? Bethpage is to Jerusalem. It's just right next door. If you walk on the same route, you might even exit the city gates and there's this little village here. Jesus sends two of his disciples. We don't know which two, but it's an awkward scene for us, right? It kind of feels like Grand Theft Donkey. Um, they're a little apprehensive, right? Jesus is telling them, go, go take a donkey, and then you're going to see the baby donkey next to it, and just take them both. And if somebody asks you, just say, the Lord needs the donkey. Jesus describes himself as the Lord. And so they do. They follow His command. Verse 4 tells us, this event took place to fulfill what was spoken of by the prophet, saying, this is Zechariah 9, say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. So now we see a little bit of the bigger picture. It's not just that Jesus was tired of walking. And he wanted a ride. He got all the way up to Jerusalem. And before he enters into Jerusalem, uh, you know the Mount of Olives, you'll see uh, that Jerusalem was kind of located in the center here. And across the Kidron Valley, where you go down out of the city of Jerusalem, then comes the Mount of Olives. And it rises. Um, Jerusalem sits about 3,500 feet above sea level. And, uh, and so um, the Mount of Olives is taller when you get up on top of the Mount of Olives, you can see all of Jerusalem, all of the walled city. The city of David would be on your left from that vantage point. The Temple Mount would be right here and the rest of Jerusalem behind it. Jesus positions Himself there and there's a roadway that leads down into the Kidron Valley, up into the East Gate, into the city. And this is where this is taking place. This is where Zechariah prophesied that in the future a king would come to you. Not a king on a war horse conquering, but a king who brings peace. And so Jesus, we're told, is uh, this is a symbolic action. One commentator notes it like this. The whole 
chapter 1, chapter 21, the first three sections of Matthew 21 feature these symbolic acts that disclose Jesus' identity. This symbolic act, um, Jesus entering into Jerusalem on a donkey amidst the Hosannas. When he gets to the temple, his identity as king continues when he does the symbolic act of driving out the money changers, flipping tables and running people off, uh, cursing a fig tree, verses 18 through 19. All these symbolic acts, they're very common in Scripture. You remember the prophets would do these things. Isaiah walked naked and barefoot as a symbol of um, Israel's coming shame. Uh, Jeremiah smashed a pot before Israel's leaders that signified impending judgment. Hosea was told to marry a prostitute named Gomer, just in case you're looking for girl names. Um, uh, He was told to marry Gomer um, as a, a symbol of Israel's spiritual prostitution. And so the interpretation of the symbolism in Matthew 21 is important. What does it tell us? What is the symbol of Jesus riding on a donkey? What is the symbol of Jesus upending the money changers within the temple and calling it, my father's house shall be a house of prayer? What's the symbol of Jesus cursing the ripe fig tree? uh, The unripe fig tree? All of these things tell us something about Jesus' identity. What are we supposed to understand? The king is coming into Jerusalem. And the king has authority. Look at verse 6. The disciples go and they do as Jesus directed them. They brought the donkey, the colt. They put their cloaks on the donkey and he sat on them. Most of the crowd now begins to spread their cloaks on the road and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. Uh, yesterday I, I went out and um, I was at Giant and, uh, and I bought this palm plant and I wanted to have some sort of a visual for what it looked like uh, as they spread these. Now these are small. Um, Nicole actually brought in some this morning that were half my height. I mean, these were huge palm branches, but they began to lay these palm branches out onto the road. They would lay their cloaks out on the road and they would wave these palm branches. I'm trying to get an idea of, of what this, um, this might have looked like with these palm branches waving. I, and I got the image, maybe it's wrong, but then, you know, the NBA game, you'll get those kind of classic things, or you'll get the big foam finger. Um, I don't know if this was like a a celebratory way um, in Scripture, but I I did look up palm branches. I spent a bit of the week trying to figure out any significance to it. In 2 Kings, uh, Jehu is declared king, and when he's declared king, they spread their cloaks on the ground, and they waved palm branches. That's one of the first examples that we see in this anointing of a king. You have to go to the Apocrypha, to those intertestamental books, if you grew up Catholic, uh, quasi-Catholic like I did, you remember uh, those kind of crazy books that you see um, in the middle before the Gospels about Maccabees. You ever, anybody ever read the Maccabees? Um, Alex, I bet you read some Maccabees. We've got some Maccabees folks over here. Um, in Catholicism, they have a few other books that we don't have. But in one of those books, um, Simon Maccabeus, a conquering hero about 300 years before Christ, rides into Jerusalem. And when he does, he cleanses the citadel, cleanses the city of those who had come in as the invading army. This is before Greek, this is before Rome. And when he does that, they all wave these palm branches and they all put their cloaks on the ground for the conquering hero. This means something. They wouldn't just do this for anybody. They wouldn't just do this because Jesus was a miracle worker. These actions are reserved for a king. 
Verse 9, the crowds that went before him and those that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Hosanna, we say this word occasionally, it just means save us. Save, O Lord, save. It's a prayer of exclamation. Son of David was a messianic title. The Messiah who was to come was in the line of David. He comes in the name of the Lord, which means He's a representative of God. All of these are clues telling us something about Jesus. Verse 10, And when He entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. In Philadelphia, the whole city was stirred up over the Eagles Super Bowl, over the Phillies World Series. The whole city was stirred up. All of Jerusalem was stirred up. There was a buzz. Who is this? They say this is the prophet Jesus. That could be good. You think of the prophet Moses predicted in Deuteronomy that a prophet like me will come, a greater prophet. Some of the Pharisees asked, are you the prophet in Jesus' early ministry? Them saying Jesus is the prophet could have been good, but it's coupled with from Nazareth, which is not so good. Um, I grew up in a little um, town uh, that was kind of like Nazareth. The, par- you know, the saying about Nazareth was, can anything really good come out of Nazareth? The little town I grew up in in Oklahoma was kind of a trashy town, uh, kind of from a, you know, a, a bad area. And um, it just, you know, this phrase would have fit perfectly. Can anything good come out of Noble? You know, it just led the statistics in the state for all the wrong things, all right? Um, It was not the best place to be from. And so the prophet from Nazareth, and the Pharisees have already said, look it up. There is no prophet who comes from Nazareth. Um, We'll get to what this means here in a few minutes about why the crowd say he's the prophet. But the point I want to make this morning about this passage is that Jesus clearly reveals his identity as the king. That's the main point. That's the main point of the triumphal entry. And there are clues and signals that show us that Jesus is the King. He asserts His authority as the King and the Messiah over Jerusalem. He's already done that over Capernaum and over Galilee. And everywhere He goes, people are trying to make Him King. But now He's riding into Jerusalem in this symbolic way that takes authority over Jerusalem. It's revealed in his triumphal entry. It's revealed in him overturning the tables of the money changers, cursing the fig tree, his debates with religious leaders, all the seven woes that he pronounces over the Pharisees in Matthew 23. The triumphal entry leaves no doubt as to who Jesus is. And that's the question. That's the question that you have to answer, by the way. Who is Jesus? At some point, you have to wrestle on a personal level with who is Jesus. You can hear what your parents say. You can hear what uh, a documentary says about Jesus. You can listen to a philosophy teacher at college and what they have to say, a a secular um, professor or in some way. A lot of people are going to try to tell you who Jesus is. But listen, I'm telling you, you personally 
have to answer this question, who is Jesus? This is something that you will have to wrestle with based on Jesus' claims to be the judge of the world and, and based on the Bible's claims that one day you'll stand before him in judgment. And what you do with this question is the most important thing you will do in your life. It's not who you'll marry. That's important. It's not what career you choose. That's very important. It's not what you're going to do for retirement. That's important. It's not what investments you're going to make. It's not what, how you're going to spend your time. It's not what skills you're going to develop. The main question, which all your eternity hinges on, is who is Jesus? What you do with that question? Jesus wants you to know. And I think this is interesting because at this point, Jesus is revealing his identity. But did you ever struggle with, do you remember early on in the Gospels, um, Jesus would heal somebody or he would drive out a demon and the demon would shriek something like, I know who you are. You're the son of God. And, and it would, Jesus would say, but he would not allow them to speak because they knew who he was. I was, I was like, why, would you, why did you shush him, Jesus? If you want people to know that you're the Messiah and the son of God, why would you tell, even if it's a demon, why would you tell them not to tell everybody who you are? Why did Jesus veil his identity for the first few years of his ministry uh, Mark 1 21 uh, the demon shrieks what have you to do with us have you come to destroy us I know who you are you're the holy one of God but Mark 1 25 Jesus rebuked him saying be silent and come out of him uh, Mark 1 34 he healed many who were sick with various diseases he cast out many demons but he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew who he was Matthew 12, verses 15 through 16, Jesus, aware that they were coming to make him king, withdrew and he hid himself and he ordered them not to make him known. Even his brothers who didn't believe in him said, hey, if you're really a teacher, if you're really who you say you are, go up to Jerusalem and make yourself known. For no one works in secret if he wants to be known openly. But Jesus said, my time's not yet come. And then he ends up going up to the feast secretly later. Why did Jesus veil his identity? Or limit access to who he was so early in his ministry, only to now make it abundantly clear to everybody through symbols in front of crowds of thousands, identify himself, not just as God, but we'll see in other ways. We see in this text at least six identity markers in Matthew 21, 1 through 11. The Lord needs them. Jesus told his disciples, tell them Kurios needs them. Kurios was the word for the Lord, master, owner. Jesus is saying, tell those who own the donkey that the Lord needs them. He's identifying himself as the Lord. Verse 5, the prophecy from Zechariah, your king is riding on a donkey. Jesus chose to ride on a donkey, identifying himself as the king. Verse 9, when the crowds follow him, they shout Hosanna, which is save Lord, and they're shouting it to Jesus. To the son of David, that's a messianic identity marker that Jesus is the Messiah. Uh, verse 10, when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was was. Uh, stirred up saying, who is this? That's an identity question. And the crowd said, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. It's all the same in the other three gospel accounts. Mark 11, 1 through 11, Luke 19, 28 through 40, John 12, 12 through 19. All of those four accounts, there are identity markers as to who Jesus is. Listen, why does that matter to you here today 
April 2nd, 2023 in Telford? Like, why does that even matter? Who is Jesus and why does this matter? Because if Jesus is who he claims to be, if he claims to be the Son of God and the Savior of the world, then we should lean in a little bit. You should deal with this question. Jesus made bold claims. He said he's God's Son. He said he died on your behalf. He said that uh, he died for your sins. You personally, not just you, plural, in general, but, but you. This has a bearing on your life, who Jesus is. We should evaluate our lives and our choices in light of his identity that he reveals to us. Let me suggest three ways that we can respond to this. Number one is seek Jesus. And when you do, you will be more convinced of his identity. No matter where you are today, whether you've been a believer for a while and you're, you're maybe a little tired of hearing about Jesus. Maybe this doesn't even really thrill you to contemplate the cross and the resurrection. You take the bread, you take the juice, and it's, it's kind of a religious thing that you're just sort of in the habit of doing. Maybe church doesn't thrill you. Maybe you don't enjoy singing worship songs. Maybe you've just grown tired of Jesus. Harsh to say, maybe, but true. Or maybe you're seeking. Maybe you don't even really believe in Jesus and you're here as somebody who might identify as not yet a believer, not a follower of Jesus, but you're learning. You want to learn. You want to examine the claims of Christ and figure out who He is and and what it means for you personally. Maybe, Maybe you're today more in love with Jesus than you've ever been. Hanging on every word and you're saturating your life with the Gospels and the message and the person of Jesus. The more you seek Jesus, the more convinced you become of his identity. The crowds thought he was a prophet. They did not receive him as the king. They did not believe he was the Messiah. They did not believe he was God. How do I know that? In just a few days, you're going to read that they're going to cry out, crucify him, crucify him. Many people who were in the crowd saying, Hosanna, glory to God in the highest, save us, O king, are the same ones who might a few days later be saying, crucify him and give us Barabbas instead. The crowd missed his identity. They thought he was just a prophet, which is nice, but not adequate. And you can miss Jesus. You and I hear people describe Jesus in many ways, right? He was a good teacher. He was a moral leader, a gifted healer or a prophet, a social example of love and sacrifice that we should just do the things that he did. Maybe he was a rebel who overthrew a corrupt religious system. All of those descriptions are fine for just regular humans like us. But Jesus didn't claim to be a human. Jesus claimed to forgive sin. Uh, Who can forgive sin? The Pharisees asked. Only God. Uh, Jesus received worship. The, The Pharisees rebuked him. Teacher, rebuke your disciples. They're praising you. And Jesus said, if if they don't praise me, what? The rocks are going to cry out. Jesus received worship. He forgave sins. He healed. Um, Jesus claimed to be God. Now listen, you can't say that that's a good teacher, right? C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity put it this way, a man who was just a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. 
he would be a lunatic on the level with a man who says he is a poached egg, or else he would be some sort of devil of hell. But you must make your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God, or he's a madman or something worse. Good teachers don't say, I'm God. Right? So you have to do something with Jesus' claims, and it's inadequate for you to put him in the category of just a good guy, or just a good teacher, or just a moral example. Those identifiers won't help you on the day of judgment. If you come to Jesus and, and, and arrive at that day of judgment and, and your entire eternity is hinging on what you do with Jesus and you say, I think he was a good moral teacher. It's not acceptable based on who he revealed himself to be. You can miss Jesus. You can miss him. You can, you can um, misidentify who he is. But you can also seek Him and know Him in His real identity. You can also seek Him and know Him. Uh, Proverbs 8.17 says, I love those who love me and those who seek me diligently find me. Matthew 7.7-8 Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives and the one who seeks finds. And to him who knocks, the door will be opened. Jesus is not playing hide and seek but He is available to those who seek Him honestly and sincerely. He wants to make Himself known to you. One of my favorite chapters in the Bible is Exodus 33. You remember that chapter in Exodus 33, 7-11? Moses used to take a tent and he would pitch it outside the city and, and outside the tents and he would, he would go out there to seek God and, and as he would rise and walk through the the. the sort of pathways through that tent city and, and he would go out to the tent of meeting. Um, that passage says that a cloud, when Moses entered the tent, a cloud would descend onto that tent and the Bible says that Moses would speak to God face to face as a man speaks with a friend. That's how, that was his regular routine, was going out of the city to seek God and to be with Him. And then it says Joshua, his aide, the son of Nun, never left that tent. He was constantly in the presence of God, seeking God. And no wonder God used Joshua so incredibly. That passage goes on to say when, when um, Moses was interceding for the people of Israel and he was asking God, please go with us. Don't just send me. Don't just send an angel, but you have to come with us. If you don't come with us, we don't stand a chance. But then he says, if I've found favor in your eyes, show me your ways so that I may know you. Listen, this is an 80-year-old plus Moses. Right? He dies at 120. In his, in his 8th century or later, he is still passionately pursuing intimacy with God. So much so that he says, um, let me know you. And God says, there's a rock near me where you can stand. And I'm going to put you in the cleft of this rock. And I'm going to... Um, allow all my goodness to pass in front of you. And he declares this great passage, um, I am the Lord, the Lord, faithful and kind, abounding in steadfast love and mercy. God declares who He is to Moses as Moses is seeking Him. <clears throat> Jeremiah 9, 23-24 says, Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts, boast in this, that he knows and understands me. That I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. 
Listen, if you seek the Lord, He will reveal Himself to you. That's the experience of many people in this room. It's the experience I've had, experience many of you have had, that when you set your heart to steadfastly know the Lord, He reveals Himself to you. And what happens when that? The more you know of Him, the more your love for Him increases, right? And what's the greatest command? That you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Your love for Him increases the more He reveals Himself to you. you des- your desire to please Him increases. Your submission to His will increases. Your humility increases while your ego decreases. Your sense of awe and wonder and love at the person of Jesus dramatically increases. So who is Jesus? What's His revealed identity? <clears throat> I'm going to read to you a list. Um, it just describes who Jesus is from Scripture. I have a list, uh, about 30 or so of these available if you want to see one um, after the service is over. But I just picked a handful of these um, so that you can meditate on who Scripture says Jesus is. Um, in these passages, in the Bible, <clears throat> we read that Jesus is revealed as the chief cornerstone. The cornerstone was the building uh, the, the cornerstone was the stone upon which the entire building's foundation was set and built up. Jesus is the chief cornerstone. He says He's the firstborn over all creation in Colossians 1. That's not to mean that Jesus was the first thing created, because just a few verses later it says that through Him all things were created. It's just to say that Jesus has rank and preeminence over all things that were created. The Bible says that Jesus is the head of all things and the church in Ephesians 1, verse 22, chapter 4, verse 15, and 5, 23. Jesus Christ, not a king or a pope, is the only supreme sovereign ruler over the church and the universe. The Bible says that Jesus is the Holy One. We read that in Acts chapter 3 when Peter and John were preaching the gospel, that Jesus is the Holy One. We read in Acts 10, 42 that He is the righteous judge. We see that He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords in Revelation 19.16. That Jesus is the unindictable president over all presidents. He is the King of kings and the Lord of all lords. John 8.12 says He's the light of the world. Isaiah 9.6 says He's the Prince of Peace. Luke 1.35 and John 1.49 say that He is the Son of God. The only begotten Son of the Father. This is used 42 times in the New Testament, describing Jesus as the Son of God, not a Son of God. It says that He's the Son of Man in John 5.27, which is a phrase that emphasizes His humanity from Daniel. He says He's the Word made flesh. The Word is the second person of the triune God in John 1.1. He's the Alpha and the Omega in Revelation 1 and Revelation chapter 22. He is called Emmanuel, which is literally God with us. He describes himself as the great I am in John 8:58, which is the word that God spoke to Moses in the bush. Tell them the I am sent you. It was a word that triggered all those who heard Jesus declare himself as the I am. It says that He is the Lord of all in Acts 10.36. The true God in 1 John 5.20. Hebrews 12.2 says He's the author and the perfecter of our faith. John 6.35 says He's the bread of life. 
Matthew 9.15 says he's the bridegroom for God's chosen and redeemed people. He's the deliverer in Romans 11, the good shepherd in John 10, the high priest in Hebrews 2, the very lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world in John 1.29. He is our mediator in 1 Timothy 2. He is a rock to which we may run and also the rock from which life-giving water flowed when Moses struck the rock in the wilderness in 1 Corinthians 10. He is the resurrection and the life, is what he told Mary and Martha. He is the Savior, the true vine in John 15 and John 14, 6. He's the way, the truth, and the life. The only path to God, the only truth in a world of lies, and the only true source of eternal life. We hear the phrase a lot, I identify as, I identify as this, I identify as that. But in many ways, when we hear that phrase in our culture, we know that there's not a lot of truth to back up what you claim to identify as. Jesus claims something here. Jesus claims in all of Scripture to be the unique Son of God, the Savior of the world, the Messiah, the King of kings, the Lord of lords. And He backs it up with miracles and teachings and ultimately the resurrection from the dead. That's somebody that you need to know who He is. If you don't know who Jesus is, or maybe you're bored with who Jesus is today, something must change so that we have a reverence and awe at who the person of Jesus is. And that's my prayer for us as we enter this week. Lord Jesus, thank you for your word today. And thank you for the triumphal entry that shows us so clearly who you are. I pray that we would take heed, no matter where we are today in our understanding of who you are. May we, um, may we seek you and pursue you so that we may know you in your holiness, so we may know you as Savior, as Lord, as the Master and King of Kings. Thank you for our time to worship together this morning, and we pray for your blessing and your favor over our remaining time together. In Jesus' name, amen.